experience in America prior to the U.S. Constitution. Settlers in colonial America viewed the right to arms and or the right to bear arms and or state militias as important for one or more of these purposes, in no particular order. Enabling the people to organize a militia system. Participating in law enforcement. Safeguarding against tyrannical governments. Repelling invasion. Suppressing insurrection, allegedly including slave revolts, though some scholars say the claim of a specific intent to protect the ability to put down slave revolts is not supported by the historical record. Facilitating a natural right of self-defense. Which of these considerations were thought of as most important and ultimately found expression in the Second Amendment is disputed. Some of these purposes were explicitly mentioned in early state constitutions, for example, the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776 asserted that, the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state. During the 1760s pre-revolutionary period, the established colonial militia was composed of colonists, including many who were loyal to British rule. As defiance and opposition to British rule developed, a distrust of these loyalists and the militia became widespread among the colonists known as patriots, who favored independence from British rule. As a result, some patriots created their own militias that excluded the loyalists and then sought to stock independent armories for their militias. In response to this arms buildup, the British Parliament established an embargo of firearms, parts and ammunition against the American colonies. King George III also began disarming individuals who were in the most rebellious areas in the 1760s and 1770s. British and Loyalist efforts to disarm the colonial Patriot militia armories in the early phases of the American Revolution resulted in the Patriot colonists protesting by citing the Declaration of Rights, Blackstone's summary of the Declaration of Rights, their own militia laws and common law rights to self-defense. While British policy in the early phases of the revolution clearly aimed to prevent coordinated action by the Patriot militia, some have argued that there is no evidence that the British sought to restrict the traditional common law right of self-defense. Patrick J. Charles disputes these claims citing similar disarming by the Patriots and challenging those scholars' interpretation of Blackstone. The right of the colonists to arms and rebellion against oppression was asserted, for example, in a pre-revolutionary newspaper editorial in 1769 objecting to the Crown suppression of colonial opposition to the Townsend Acts. Instances of the licentious and outrageous behavior of the military conservators of the peace still multiply upon us, some of which are of such nature, and have been carried to such lengths, as must serve fully to evince that a late vote of this town, calling upon its inhabitants to provide themselves with arms for their defense, was a measure as prudent as it was legal. Such violences are always to be apprehended from military troops, when quartered in the body of a populous city, but more especially so, when they are led to believe that they are become necessary to awe a spirit of rebellion, injuriously said to be existing therein. It is a natural right which the people have reserved to themselves, confirmed by the Bill of Rights, to keep arms for their own defense, and as Mr. Blackstone observes, it is to be made use of when the sanctions of society and law are found insufficient to restrain the violence of oppression. The armed forces that won the American Revolution consisted of the standing Continental Army created by the Continental Congress, together with regular French Army and naval forces and various state and regional militia units. In opposition, the British forces consisted of a mixture of the standing British Army, Loyalist militia and Hessian mercenaries. Following the Revolution, the United States was governed by the Articles of Confederation. Federalists argued that this government had an unworkable division of power between Congress and the states, which caused military weakness, as the standing army was reduced to as few as 80 men. They considered it to be bad that there was no effective federal military crackdown on an armed tax rebellion in western Massachusetts known as Shays' Rebellion. Anti-Federalists, on the other hand, took the side of limited government and sympathized with the rebels, 
many of whom were former Revolutionary War soldiers. Subsequently, the Constitutional Convention proposed in 1787 to grant Congress exclusive power to raise and support a standing army and navy of unlimited size. Anti-Federalists objected to the shift of power from the states to the federal government, but as adoption of the Constitution became more and more likely, they shifted their strategy to establishing a Bill of Rights that would put some limits on federal power. Modern scholars Thomas B. McAfee and Michael J. Quinlan have stated that James Madison did not invent the right to keep and bear arms when he drafted the Second Amendment, the right was pre-existing at both common law and in the early state constitutions. In contrast, historian Jack Rakoff suggests that Madison's intention in framing the Second Amendment was to provide assurances to moderate anti-federalists that the militias would not be disarmed. One aspect of the gun control debate is the conflict between gun control laws and the right to rebel against unjust governments. Blackstone in his commentaries alluded to this right to rebel as the natural right of resistance and self-preservation, to be used only as a last resort, exercisable when the sanctions of society and laws are found insufficient to restrain the violence of oppression. Some believe that the framers of the Bill of Rights sought to balance not just political power, but also military power, between the people, the states and the nation, as Alexander Hamilton explained in his Concerning the Militia essay published in 1788. It will be possible to have an excellent body of well-trained militia, ready to take the field whenever the defense of the state shall require it. This will not only lessen the call for military establishments, but if circumstances should at any time oblige the government to form an army of any magnitude, that army can never be formidable to the liberties of the people, while there is a large body of citizens, little, if at all, inferior to them in discipline and the use of arms, who stand ready to defend their own rights and those of their fellow citizens. This appears to me the only substitute that can be devised for a standing army, and the best possible security against it, if it should exist. Some scholars have said that it is wrong to read a right of armed insurrection into the Second Amendment because clearly the Founding Fathers sought to place trust in the power of the ordered liberty of democratic government versus the anarchy of insurrectionists. Other writers, such as Glenn Reynolds, contend that the framers did believe in an individual right to armed insurrection. They cite examples, such as the Declaration of Independence, describing in 1776 the right of the people to institute new government, and the Constitution of New Hampshire, stating in 1784 that non-resistance against arbitrary power and oppression is absurd, slavish, and destructive of the good and happiness of mankind. There was an ongoing debate beginning in 1789 about the people fighting governmental tyranny, as described by anti-federalists, or the risk of mob rule of the people, as described by the federalists, related to the increasingly violent French Revolution. A widespread fear, during the debates on ratifying the Constitution, was the possibility of a military takeover of the states by the federal government, which could happen if the Congress passed laws prohibiting states from arming citizens, or prohibiting citizens from arming themselves. Though it has been argued that the states lost the power to arm their citizens when the power to arm the militia was transferred from the states to the federal government by Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution, the individual right to arm was retained and strengthened by the Militia Acts of 1792 and the Similar Act of 1795. State Constitutional Precursors to the Second Amendment Related articles and sections within the first state constitutions adopted after May 10, 1776. Note, on May 10, 1776, Congress passed a resolution recommending that any colony with a government that was not inclined toward independence should form one that was. Virginia, June 12, 1776. Virginia's constitution lists the reasons for dissolving its ties with the king and the formation of its own independent state government. Including the following. Keeping among us, in times of peace, standing armies and ships of war. Effectively to render the military independent of, and superior to, the civil power. 
these same reasons would later be outlined within the Declaration of Independence. A Declaration of Rights. Section 13. That a well-regulated militia, composed of the body of the people, trained to arms, as the proper, natural, and safe defense of a free state, that standing armies, in time of peace, should be avoided, as dangerous to liberty, and that in all cases the military should be under strict subordination to, and governed by, the civil power. Pennsylvania, September 28, 1776. Article 13. That the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves in the state, and as standing armies in the time of peace are dangerous to liberty, they ought not to be kept up, and that the military should be kept under strict subordination to, and governed by, the civil power. This is the first instance in relation to the U.S. constitutional law of the phrase right to bear arms. Article 43. The inhabitants of this state shall have the liberty to foul and hunt in seasonable times on the lands they hold, and on all other lands therein not enclosed. It is relevant that Pennsylvania was a Quaker colony traditionally opposed to bearing arms. In settling Pennsylvania, William Penn had a great experiment in view, a holy experiment, as he termed it. This was no less than to test, on a scale of considerable magnitude, the practicability of founding and governing a state on the sure principles of the Christian religion, where the executive should be sustained without arms, where justice should be administered without oaths, and where real religion might flourish without the incubus of a hierarchical system. The non-Quaker residents, many from the western counties, complained often and loudly of being denied the right to a common defense. By the time of the American Revolution, through what could be described as a revolution within a revolution, the pro-militia factions had gained ascendancy in the state's government. And by a manipulation through the use of oaths, disqualifying Quaker members, they made up a vast majority of the convention forming the new state constitution. It was only natural that they would assert their efforts to form a compulsory state militia in the context of a right to defend themselves in the state. Maryland, November 11, 1776. Articles 25-27. 25. That a well-regulated militia is the proper and natural defense of a free government. 26. That standing armies are dangerous to liberty, and ought not to be raised or kept up, without consent of the legislature. 27. That in all cases, and at all times, the military ought to be under strict subordination to and control of the civil power. North Carolina, December 18, 1776. A Declaration of Rights. Article 17. That the people have a right to bear arms, for the defense of the state, and, as standing armies, in time of peace, are dangerous to liberty, they ought not to be kept up, and that the military should be kept under strict subordination to, and governed by, the civil power. New York, April 20, 1777. Article 40. And whereas it is of the utmost importance to the safety of every state that it should always be in a condition of defense, and it is the duty of every man who enjoys the protection of society to be prepared and willing to defend it, this convention therefore, in the name and by the authority of the good people of this state, doth ordain, determine, and declare that the militia of this state, at all times hereafter, as well in peace as in war, shall be armed and disciplined, and in readiness for service. That all such of the inhabitants of this state being of the people called Quakers as, from scruples of conscience, may be averse to the bearing of arms, be therefrom excused by the legislature, and do pay to the state such sums of money, in lieu of their personal service, as the same, may, in the judgment of the legislature, be worth. And that a proper magazine of warlike stores, proportionate to the number of inhabitants, be, forever hereafter, at the expense of this state, and by acts of the legislature, established, maintained, and continued in every county in this state. Vermont, July 8, 1777. Chapter 1. Section 18. That the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of the themselves in the state, 
and as standing armies, in the time of peace, are dangerous to liberty, they ought not to be kept up, and that the military should be kept under strict subordination to, and governed by, the civil power. Massachusetts, June 15, 1780. A Declaration of Rights. Chapter 1. Article 17. The people have a right to keep and to bear arms for the common defense. And as, in times of peace, armies are dangerous to liberty, they ought not to be maintained without the consent of the legislature, and the military power shall always be held in an exact subordination to the civil authority and be governed by it. The text of this podcast is sourced from the Wikipedia Foundation under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The written text has been altered for voice presentation. To view the modified and original text versions visit thelegalpages.com. The content of this podcast is presented for informational purposes only, and is not intended to be legal or professional advice. The Wikipedia Foundation is not affiliated with this podcast.